Hello, I'm Nadi Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be focusing on the latest on the COVID-19 vaccine distribution efforts. To discuss the most recent updates are IDSA members Dr. Saad Omer with Yale University and Dr. Matthew Zahn with the Orange County Healthcare Agency. Thank you both for being with me. At the end of February, Dr. Zahn, the U.S. reached a key milestone of 50 million individuals vaccinated. What strategies were most successful in boosting vaccine distribution and administration, and what key hurdles remain? The first key to vaccinating that many people is having the vaccine available. We shouldn't ever forget about how important and extraordinary the achievement was for vaccine manufacturers to produce vaccines that are both safe and effective within a one-year period of time. So that's, that's the first hurdle. Then in terms of distributing the vaccine and getting people vaccinated, at least in the initial rounds, really there have been a, a couple of specific foci. One is uh, to vaccinate healthcare workers. And that has involved from a public health standpoint, partnering with hospitals and with healthcare systems. The healthcare systems and those hospitals have done an extraordinary job of vaccinating their healthcare workers, particularly when you remember that so many of them were in fact uh, going through COVID-19 disease surges while they were vaccinating their staff. So I think that's been a a real achievement from, from the healthcare side. Pharmacy partnership program on a federal level has really, I think, been extremely effective in vaccinating both staff and residents in long-term care facilities, nursing homes and such. So I think that's been a a success as well. Then the third level is to begin to vaccinate people who are at particular risk, at high risk. On a local level, that has meant either dusting off or developing new pod plans, points of distribution plans. And that's really the, the format that I think in a lot of communities, an awful lot of vaccine has been given. So I, all of those have been have been really successful, I think, to this point. When you ask what hurdles remain, well, there are hurdles that are that are still significant. I think that one of the is- biggest issues is to compare this to the H1N1 pandemic from you know, uh, 10 years ago. Biggest difference to me that I see in a public health side is use of online methods of getting people appointments so that they can get vaccinated. Online processes have really been central in a lot of communities. And that really works really well to get a lot of people appointments quickly, but a lot of people aren't served very well by that. The elderly don't access online uh, very well, uh, just in many situations. Language barriers in certain communities are a big deal. So I, I think improving our processes of using online methods of getting people uh, appointments or using uh, non-online methods entirely uh, are going to be really, really important. The other big hurdle that we have to move on to quickly is the limiting factor as we speak today is the amount of vaccine. There's still an awful lot of people out there who want to get vaccinated, who we're, we're still trying to provide enough vaccine for them. In the coming weeks, very quickly, the limiting factor is going to be people's interest in being vaccinated. And we're going to have to transition over to that, both with our messaging and I think giving them tangible reasons why they should get vaccinated. You know, we've had an awful lot of success in the the first couple of months here, but I think that the method of vaccination and the method of getting people vaccinated from a public health side is really going to change holistically uh, in the coming weeks and months. Excellent points, Dr. Zahn. Thank you for raising them. 
Dr. Omer, turning to you now, President Biden recently increased his COVID-19 vaccination goal to 150 million shots in arms by the end of his first 100 days in office. What needs to happen to achieve that goal? I think we are accelerating the pace of vaccination in this country, and we have already accelerated that pace. In the past few days, we had numbers as high as uh, 3 million doses a day. If that becomes the norm, and I, I believe that we have the capacity to go higher as well, the, the goal is very much achievable. But the way to do that is to have national level, big picture guidance, but local level support. So support for local micro plans, ensuring that the resources that are supposed to be available through this new legislation is pushed out to the states, to the local health departments quickly. There's alignment in terms of specific operational guidance. There is reliability in supply. So yes, there have been projections that have been updated, but you know, having been involved with vaccine-related work, I can tell you, you know, there are things that can slow down delivery, et cetera. So just to make sure things stay on track and, and so on and so forth. The, the investment in large-scale delivery sites is helpful. It's going to get our numbers up. At the same time, we'll have to make sure that these vaccines are getting to the people who are most vulnerable. I was engaged with the National Academy's guidance on these issues uh, in early fall, um, and we recommended to use so the Social Vulnerability Index, which is a geographic index identifying areas of social vulnerability, is followed in ensuring access. So, so that ensures not just that the vaccine doses are getting into arms, but it is being done in a way that is equitable and also in line with the epidemiological considerations of targeting uh, the highest risk groups because the communities of color have experienced a, a disproportionate impact of this pandemic. And so with all of these, that kind of an approach, that kind of a strategy can get us there. We are well on track to get to the president's goal, but I think we should aim to and can exceed that goal. Great points, Dr. Omer. And we will talk about the equitable distribution of vaccines later on in the podcast. Thank you. Dr. Zahn, how does the availability of the third vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, impact distribution? It's tremendously important for our ability to, to vaccinate uh, communities and, and this country. Most important thing to me to think about when you recognize this third vaccine is I think there's been a lot of conversation about uh, the fact that a one-dose vaccine that's with easier storage necessities really particularly works, uh, reaches uh, particular populations. But really, if you talk about the scale amount of vac this vaccine that's going to be available, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they're projecting 100 million doses by uh, summertime, if I understand correctly. Well, that's not a niche vaccine. That is a vaccine that we should utilize routinely in all settings. If you think about this vaccine and you think who is best served by a vaccine where you only need one dose, well, everybody is. <laughs> and so I think we have a lot of evidence that this is a very safe and very effective vaccine. And I think from a public health standpoint, my main mindset is to, and what I, I hope people begin to understand is not to think of this as a vaccine that's available for particular population. Uh, I think rural populations, homeless populations have been thought of just because these are populations whom the system does not reach well. 
but really this is a vaccine that works well for everybody and really I would anticipate and hope that it is routinely introduced and used in any situations in communities where, where the vaccine is offered. It's a huge benefit, gives us a third vaccine that's available and gives us a, really a chance to vaccinate a lot more people more quickly than we had before it was available. Thank you, Dr. Zahn. Dr. O'Mara, let's turn back to you and go back to the point you raised about the equitable distribution of vaccines. What factors are driving the lower rate in Black and African American and other vulnerable communities? And what approaches are needed by government officials and healthcare providers to ensure this equitable distribution? There are several factors that are driving inequity in vaccine distributions. The primary one being that we are a highly fragmented healthcare system. Uh, and, And therefore, we have a vaccine delivery system that follows the pathways that follow that that fragmented healthcare system that already did disadvantage communities of color. For example, if we have a a delivery system which is relying on internet access, uh, we know that Black and Hispanic Americans are less likely than white counterparts to have internet access that is uh, reliable enough for uh, making sure that you go through these screens that you need to go through to, to make reservations to have access to a dependable transportation to some of these locations and to have medical homes where you can ask a question to your provider. So so sometimes if you have a question about your, if you have a situation, if you're taking a drug uh, or if you have a high risk condition and if you want to talk to your cardiologist, well, some people don't have a cardiologist to talk to and a lot of people don't have a cardiologist to talk to. So these kinds of things exacerbate the access to vaccines. But one of the disparities that I often highlight, that one of the big inequities in this pandemic is the inequity in access to information, not just sort of mass information that you passively download or sort of that is passively pushed out by public health entities and posted on their website, but engagement and sort of ongoing access to information and updated guidance. We need to make sure that uh, we have vaccine available and accessible in its true sense of the word to all communities, particularly and you know, specifically to communities of color, to uh, rural communities. There's a lot of discussion about vaccine hesitancy in communities of color, which is there. We know we have data that they are disproportionately impacted by you know, this phenomenon of hesitancy. But obviously it is in a, in a context of the well-documented injustices certain communities have faced in terms of health care provision and in, in, in a legacy of, of a health care system which is unequal and sometimes biased. And this is empirically documented. We need evidence-based, not just um, evidence-based interventions to on the supply side or on the access side, but also evidence-based interventions on on the demand side, on the vaccine hesitancy side. By the way, vaccine hesitancy is a a bit of a narrow word because it doesn't encompass the whole spectrum of demand to refusal, you know, active demand to, you know, uh, vociferous refusal. But in any case, in that area, we need evidence-based interventions that account for the fact that, you know, a lot of these things are grounded in a historic and societal context. And, you know, one note I just make on a local public health level in particular that's 
I think been difficult to watch because as we both mentioned, internet access or internet uh, methods have been used to sign people up to get vaccinated. Very often in communities, there's one portal, there's one entry, so to speak. And that means that if all communities are trying to reach through that one internet access site, it really heightens the sense of one group outcompeting another, so to speak. If one group has better internet access, has maybe better access to help understand how to navigate that internet system, doesn't have language barriers, has the access to information, as Dr. Omer said, so people can be aware, aha, the, the site where you can get signed up is up and running. If there's disparities in abilities to reach that one site, it really gives a sense of, unfortunately, a, a sense of competition uh, between communities. And that can be really unfortunate and really something we have to work hard to avoid. And one of the biggest way to avoid doing that is to start developing specific targeted ways to reach particular communities that we know are particularly at risk. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Thank you, doctors. Dr. Zahn, I'm going to stick with you. Most states are still working to vaccinate some of the highest priority populations like seniors, essential workers, and individuals with medical conditions that increase their risk for severe COVID-19 disease. How rapidly do you think we can vaccinate these particular populations? And when can we expect everyone else to receive the vaccine as well? But, I, you know, I mentioned it earlier, and I think we all have to realize that our mindset is rapidly going to have to change from recognizing that the limiting factor very soon in the next few weeks won't be vaccine. The limiting factor will be the number of people who want to get vaccinated. When will we be there, right? When will we get there? I'd really caution about thinking about that way at all. For us, there is no going to be no specific endpoint where, aha, we've achieved it. It's going to be a matter from a public health side of over months and months improving, redoubling our efforts to continue to reach more people who are at risk. So th this is not going to be a, a situation where in a couple of months, because the vaccine is easily available, we will have reached where we, the people that we wanted to reach, particularly on a local level. We have to find specific ways that best reach these populations. Essential workers that you mentioned are, are, are a particular concern for me and, and for local public health. Essential workers work long hours. They work odd hours. They very often have barriers to accessing information to know where they can get vaccinated, particularly for essential workers, for me, and really for all of those at-risk groups. We have to think about novel ways to make sure that these vaccines are available, uh, making available clinical sites at work sites or at particular community sites that people are aware of so that they know that they can get vaccinated. So the vaccine's going to be available, but having the plan and the resources, honestly, on a local level to use that vaccine well to reach those people that are hurt populations that we haven't done a good job of reaching thus far, that's going to be an ongoing uh, effort. And I don't you know, I don't see an expiration date to that effort. It's going to be ongoing for months and likely years. I appreciate your insight, Dr. Zahn. 
For the last question, I'd like to direct it to both of you. Can you discuss lessons learned from COVID-19 vaccine distribution that could be applied to boost routine vaccinations for things like the flu, MMR, or shingles? How can we better prepare for future mass vaccination campaigns as well? Dr. Omer, I'll start with you. The silver lining from this unprecedented effort is that we will learn a lot about the adult immunization system in this country and frankly throughout the world. We do have a vaccine that we distribute and administer throughout the country for all age groups, including adults, which is the influenza vaccine. But frankly, we don't do such a good job of making it uh, accessible, available, and appealing to the general population. So I think the first few lessons would be for other pandemic and outbreak-related vaccines. I will start with the two extremes. First, mass vaccination, which is very prevalent in other countries through national immunization days, et cetera. That kind of stuff will hopefully be internalized in this country as well, especially engaging FEMA at the macro level for these mass vaccination side. The second lesson is the support for local micro plans. And so we know immunization uh, immunization programs and immunization efforts sink or swim based on local micro plans and local troubleshooting. I hope the lessons that come out of this immunization rollout will help us develop better resources, better best practices, and frankly, pathways of sharing these practices for local micro plans uh, amongst various jurisdictions. So both for public health emergencies, unfortunately, this is not the uh, last public health emergency, but also for routine immunization. And, and the third thing is, I don't think we are doing a good job of ensuring equity. But one of the things uh, that public health does is it learns from its, not just mistakes, but its shortcomings. If done well, public health comes back with a better response. So hopefully, even if we are not living up to our own aspirations, to have a, a more equitable vaccine delivery process in this pandemic, hopefully we will have the insights from this effort that will be useful for other vaccination efforts. And it will be a very sad thing if we continue to be inequitable in our vaccine delivery and, and frankly for the whole healthcare system for preventive care, and we don't learn lessons from, from this effort. In terms of lessons learned, from a, from a very concrete standpoint, from a local public health standpoint, I think one of the biggest lessons learned, hopefully, that we take is simply the, the process of online registration, internet registration on a mass level to get people signed up to get vaccinated. That's not really something we have ever done from a local public health level to this degree. And hopefully we maintain the infrastructure and the lesson learned because there have been a lot of bumps in the road in getting internet registration of mass uh, available in communities. Just as Dr. Omer said, I think the lessons learned from applying the health equity lens to a mass vaccination event, these lessons are really important and I hope we remember them and I hope we build on what we've learned. You know, to my mind, we have certainly talked about health equity and other vaccination situations, for example, flu vaccine, I think it's, it's messaged, but certainly with all of the attention focused on COVID-19, it's really been, I think, one of the first times that public health has really talked to the community uh, about the importance of a 
vaccine and really brought health equity to the forefront of that conversation. So I think that's been really important. We've had mixed success with our messaging. First, I think that we've had difficulty communicating a relatively complicated message. And I, I think in particular, I think about essential workers. Who are essential workers? How are they identified? How are they going to be reached? I think there was a large sense that from a health equity perspective that deserved to be reached, but I'm not sure that we have had a good plan to go ahead and reach them. And I think some communities truly have begun emphasizing vaccinating people 65 and over for very good public health reasons, but also just because it was a lot easier for them to imagine and for them to understand than it was to try and reach other populations that it's, it's a little more complicated. Sometimes the community has taken a different message than we intended. Again, I, I just think about uh, essential workers and how we are, are attempting to vaccinate that population and other high-risk groups. For the community at large, and I think for many political leaders, the binary perception has been if you want to save lives, if you want to keep people healthy, you should vaccinate people 65 years of age and older because those are the people who are getting sick. Those are the people who are ended up being in the hospital and dying. Uh, from a health equity standpoint, it's also a good thing to help persons who are disadvantaged. I just can't emphasize enough that that really shouldn't be a binary conversation. Those populations who are disadvantaged, not only are those who are hardest to reach, and yes, it's important to, to be aware of them, but it's also populations who are, one, at most risk for severe disease, and two, they're part of the larger population that is really potentially spreading the virus in communities. Now, one of the problems we've had is we, we just have limited knowledge about how well the vaccine prevents asymptomatic infection, how, how well it prevents uh, spread of the virus. We have more and more information that it does prevent spread of the virus, but it's been a bit of a hole in our information. So it's been a little bit difficult for us to message or game plan out about how important it is to reach those populations. People have to recognize that when we're thinking about health equity, we're not thinking about it as something to do because certain populations are just generally disadvantaged. We're also doing it because there's very important public health good and lives to be saved when we reach those populations well. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Omer and Zahn for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's real-time learning network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.